thank you for joining. All right, as everyone jumps on, let's get started. <clears throat> we're in Newey, so we've got the bad news that we're still in lockdown, which wasn't surprising, but it's still kind of a little bit of a kick um, <laughs> and just means that it's gonna be a longer time of schooling from home and juggling and trying to work it all out. So I hope you're all doing okay. And if you're not, um, please know that it's okay. I think a lot of us are getting asked to do the impossible um, for many days at the moment. So um, yeah, just know that you're not alone and please reach out for help if you need it. I just got a delivery of tea from my hubby and it's literally like a jug, like it's <laughs> big as my head. Okay. All right, so live tonight, full Q&A. Um, we've already got some absolutely stellar questions through. So thank you so much for kicking us off. But if you haven't joined a Q&A before with us, it is literally a free for all. Just type your questions. I'll hopefully get them to them all. It just depends on how busy it is. But um, yeah, some really good stuff to get us started. The questions tonight I've kind of themed in terms of um, where we're currently at with the theme week. So we've got women's health, we've got body image and also eating disorder awareness. We've got PCOS, we've got a whole bunch of stuff. So there's a bit of a range um, and I hope you enjoy it. So yeah, my hair's getting quite long. It's getting hard to do, but anyway, I know I'm not alone in this issue. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> sorry, let's get started. It's been a while since I've been on. I feel a bit uh, rusty, but anyway, <laughs> let's get to it. We've got um, Matilda's heading away to Ireland on the weekend. So um, it's been a really busy week. Um, really exciting stuff to see those girls together again. Um, feels like only yesterday it was the Olympics, but anyway, we're here. Um, so when we're looking at the questions, let's start from the top. So first one was how to best support a new PT client recovering from an ED. So this has must, must have come from a PT. Um, so when you're thinking about um, a new PT client, you've got to appreciate, I guess, that the trust may not have been built up as yet, um, but there's a really big opportunity there to be a really big support to this person. Now, the good thing is, is that you are aware that they are recovering from an ED. I think sometimes that can take a long time to come out. And the fact that they've been transparent about that from the start is really, really impressive and a really positive on your behalf to know that and at least have had that discussion. Um, the way to support that person is to honestly be a safe place and also um, a place where you remove discussions around weight, appearance, and allow them to actually do the healing that's needed. So um, it's a real patient space, um, but also appreciating your lane when it comes to you know, eating disorder, I think is something that gets really fuzzy, particularly when we start to see recovery from eating disorder. We don't just go from eating disorder to normalized eating. There's a whole lot of food rules and also disordered eating um, as a part of that recovery. And so being aware of that and being um, appreciative of the role that exercise can play in a real positive sense, but also in a negative sense, if that becomes the new addiction and the new um, escape or numbing, can, and uh, even that space for control is something just to be aware of. And we did a post today around how to bring that up. So if you do become concerned about a behavior of one of your clients or friends or whatever, the role isn't for you to fix that. The role is for you to bring it up and support and listen and acknowledge that you don't have all the answers and actually be really comfortable with that and allow them to feel safe enough or support them in taking those next steps to um, seek support. So that is the best thing you do, but you're doing a really great start in asking anyway. So go you. Um, next question. When to stay in my lane? So I've got no nutrition 
qualifications is the um, in brackets um, and when to open conversations on disordered eating. So the really big issue and also challenge that we've got, um, and I'm assuming this is likely from a coach or um, PT also, is that there's a really big normalization of disordered eating. And so some of the things that people will be doing um, are considered normal, but really they're just common, not normal. Um, and that becomes a really furry line when we're thinking about what we are going to recommend, um, what we're going to be alerted to, um, and how we're going to reach out. Now, to be fair, reaching out about your concern about someone um, is not overstepping your lane. Even without any nutrition qualifications, you absolutely can reach out for support and literally in the theme of today, asking if everything's okay. Um, they may say, yeah, everything is absolutely no drama, I'm great. And the, the role there isn't to push back or be aggressive or assertive, it's actually go, okay, that is really great to hear, but I am here anytime you need. Or is there anything else you know, or any other way that I can help you? Or um, is there anyone else you'd feel more comfortable chatting to? You know, you can always do that, particularly if your gut really says that they, there is something not quite right. And then if they say, oh, thank goodness you've asked, no, I'm not okay, um, then is your position to actually be there to listen, to prompt, to probe in a really inviting sense um, to see if they'd like to talk about it. And they may not like to talk about it. They may literally be at this place of just saying, no, I'm not okay. And I don't really want to talk about it. And that's the first step. And I've had some beautiful conversations with eating disorder clients in the past and friends. And the beautiful thing about reaching out and even getting a aggressive or um, defensive answer of like, no, I'm fine, um, is that when they do feel ready or um, do feel ready to open up, uh, you will likely be that person that they will feel safe and comfortable to come to to discuss that. So yeah, it's not at a loss and it's not a failure um, if it doesn't go well. Um, next question, is reverse dieting a thing? Really, really good question. Um, and I know some people had this same question. So reverse dieting is a thing. Um, it's got lots of different labels on it. Um, it's called all different things. But basically the concept is exactly what it's named, and it's reverse dieting. So if you have been in a place of restriction, restraint, deficit, there is a concept of reversing that and allowing your body to eat more um, and get back to what we would refer to as like your maintenance calories to eat enough for your body's needs alongside meeting the needs of what you're using in your training and all those types of things. Now it can take a little time. There's different ways to do it. Um, but the concept is really around getting back to that maintenance and allowing that metabolic adaptation that happens when we're at a restriction deficit point to recover and reverse. And you know, by upping those energy intakes again, we get to a point where our basal metabolic rate increases again, our workout capacity improves. Um, we also, you know, improve our digestion. We might return our menstrual cycle. We might increase libido, all those types of things. And so it is very related to being in low energy availability and what happens there. And the same person then added, do you actually damage your metabolism by restriction 
And if yes, can it be healed? And I, I really like this question because the word metabolism gets thrown around. It's just like, oh, yeah, your metabolism is injured, injured or you've got a slow metabolism or take these things to boost your metabolism. It's just literally a thrown around term that I feel isn't well um, understood. And metabolism is really around the amount of energy your body is burning and needing to create a life like you know making sure everything's running well making sure you're able to keep your body temperature all those types of things are really important so it's how much you're going to need per day even if you were just to literally sleep all day it's not considering any movement any food any training um any thinking it's literally just your minimum and that metabolism can be impacted and it starvation mode isn't a thing it's not like your body's like oh no I don't know what to do with this food I better hold on to it it's actually that we get um, our starvation state or response and so what that is called is metabolic adaptation and in response to restriction your body is going to want to conserve those dollars right so if you've got a bank account with only so much money going in and a good dose of that money is going towards your movement, your training, your body's not going to have much left, not much left to spend on those essential things like hormones, gut function, uh, mood, all those different things, keeping body temperature. And so it can be a really, really important thing that we look at um, making sure that we're having enough to eat. Um, and so, yes, your metabolism can absolutely be changed um, in states of low energy availability or restriction. But the good thing is, people, it is reversible. Um, and that's a really, really important thing to know is that we can see changes um, in people quite quickly in your metabolism i think if anyone has been in a state of really low energy availability whether it's intentional or unintentional you'll know the feeling i i take myself back to when i had extreme nausea and vomiting during my third pregnancy and i was in an absolute state there were days when i was and this is not a like i'm i'm not exaggerating this i would maybe maybe tolerate half to one piece of bread a day and it was horrific i do not wish it upon anyone and even then i might have even vomited that up so i can't even tell you how much i was eating and i was a skeleton of myself i was a shell even the thought of smiling or making facial movements was too much um the thought of going up a few stairs to water my garden was like the hardest thing I would ever have thought about. Um, I was literally just sitting and laying and conserving energy wherever I could. And it was really interesting me now. It was a horrible time, but I look back and go, wow, how amazing is the body to be able to make all these changes to my thoughts, to my movement, to my ability to um, have a metabolic rate that's healthy as soon as it goes into that starvation state. So it, it is a really interesting thing. In terms of reversing it um, and making sure that that heals, it's a really um, patient pro progress. Um, only research now is starting to come up out about how long that takes and how much we need to eat to do that. Um, but for most people, particularly if you're someone who's sensitive about weight gain, a slow refeed is a really good strategy. And that's where a sports dietitian, a dietitian can really, really help with that. 
And what it does is allows you to get back to how much you should be able to eat to maintain your weight. Um, and it's a really, really great place to be as soon as you get to that recovery, but it's a really slow and gradual process. And a whole lot of trust is needed um, in the person you're working with to get you through that because you're cutting through a lot of rules. You're challenging your beliefs and values a lot, particularly if it's, you know, an intentional deficit that you've been in for a long time. Um, but it's so worth it. Like when you think about you know, the bone health, the improvements in metabolism, your mood, your gut function, your return of menstrual function, your return of libido for males and females. It's a really, really important step in the right direction to just overall performance. So anyway, you can tell I'm passionate about that. I digress. Um, but I um, am just about to yell out to my hubby because I realized that I didn't get my charger for my computer. One moment. Good on me. Sorry, everyone. A little intermission. Um, and so next question, can you give yourself food intolerances by restricting certain foods? And just a reminder, guys, feel free to um, write through questions. It is a QA. and a I've just got some that have already been asked, so I thought I'd shoot them through. Um, so, yes. So this is a really interesting question. Thanking you. Um, when it comes to um, food intolerances, you, you can't give yourself an allergy from restricting something. Um, but intolerances are something that you might perceive um, that you've got additional kind of symptoms to certain foods. So an example of that is if in times of restriction, you also might be in a state of low energy availability like we just talked about. Um, and what can happen is we get a slowing of gut function. And so it might be perceived that you've got... Um, IBS in particular, I see a lot of athletes and um, individuals thinking they've got IBS, but in reality, it's a symptom of low energy availability that we need to um, change first. Um, we also change how many um, transporters and well, basically our ability to absorb different foods, particularly things like say glucose or whatever, depending on how much of that food we've got in our day-to-day -day diet. Our body is very, very clever. It adapts depending on what we're having. And so um, what we need to look at there is actually making sure that we're eating enough of those things to be able to absorb them well. So, yeah, the start of refeeding, I always recommend going pretty gradual, pretty slow um, to ensure that those um, upsets to gut and seemingly those um, intolerance kind of symptoms are minimized and the risk is low. Um, and next one, um, more info about struggling with being above ideal weight. Oh, this is a big question. I want to talk to this person. Um, so first of all, I want to challenge that sentence a little bit in a really nice way of considering what an ideal weight means to you. So I think sometimes what we do is we either get an ideal weight um, based around what others perceive it should be, what we might perceive it should be, um, what we feel, felt we were best at previously, um, or what we would like to be to be who we think we want to be. And that gets back to what we think is our ideal weight. What I want to flip it as um, and this is a little bit deep, <laughs> but instead of thinking your ideal weight, thinking about your ideal life, what does good mean to you? What does success mean to you? What does you in terms of your identity mean to you? Who do you want to be? So instead of thinking about what you want to be in terms of the kilos of weight or whatever that may be, 
flipping that to instead thinking through it as, well, who do I want to be? Who do I want to turn up as? Who do I want to show up as? You know, I was thinking today, you know, what's, you know, when you pass someone in the street and you then talk to your friend and say who that was, what do you want people to say about you? You know, what, what are, what are the um, emotions or the feelings or the um, things that you want to give there? So an example, right? For me at the moment in the home environment, particularly with everything going on, I want to strive to be a playful and present and patient parent. I'm never going to achieve it. It's an infinite goal. It's not something I'm ever going to achieve. But I can have actions and habits that come underneath that to at least help me to become or strive toward being that person in the home. Now, if my goal was instead I want to be two kilos lighter, do I risk my playfulness or my presence or my patience all to hopefully get that two kilograms weight loss, even though I feel like that's what's going to get me to who I want to be. And the, the big answer is, yeah, sometimes you will. You know, you might get irritable. You might get focused, obsessed, distracted um, on something that you hope will achieve something rather than being in control of who you want to be. And it's a really big thing. But um, I do push you to, if you've got a weight-based goal, to instead consider not what you want to be, but who you want to be and allow the habits underneath that to really define um, how you live your life. But yeah, it's a big one. But um, yeah, that's my answer to that one. And I know I went way off. Um, But there's going to be, in terms of being okay with being above your ideal weight, there's got to be a lot of self-acceptance there, right? Like um, there's got to be a moment where you're like, I am not defined by my weight or my appearance. And I know that is very similar to what we wrote about yesterday where how often do we um, you know, want to find control in something we actually can't control? Weight loss is not a behavior. Weight is not a behavior. So if we're constantly trying to control something that we can't even do a behavior on, that is going to cause so much angst and anxiety. And it's one of the biggest issues with diet culture. <sighs> Rant over. <laughs> I hope that helped though. I know that was a bit of a serious turn. Um, all right. Um, how to stop calorie counting, but keep in a deficit. So um, they're wanting to stop due to stress, not that they've reached their goal. And this is a really big one. So calorie counting is one of those things where it can, for short periods of time, be something extremely helpful. You might find that it helps you understand food better. You appreciate what foods are in terms of knowledge. You feel like it's kind of empowering. The thing with longer term calorie counting is that it's not normal. It's really common, but it's not normal. So if calorie counting is your only way to feel in control, if it's the only thing you're relying upon to guide your intake, then it's really important that you kind of start to challenge that and start to pull back. It is really, really scary and uncomfortable to let go of that one thing that you feel is allowing you to be in control. But it's really, really important to start to think about what it means outside of that. Think about how new calorie counting is, guys. Like, 
it is so new to the human behavior. I remember only, like it's literally 12 years ago, the only way you would calorie count was through carrying this ridiculous small pocketbook guide for calorie counting. And I just like think how fast it has happened that we've become reliant on knowing and precisely trying to estimate and count calories and basing our decision and also our worth on what number or what equation we've got for the day. And that is terrifying, to be fair. Um, And so, you know, if you're like this person um, and wanting to stop, to be fair, that is the first step. And it's a really, really cool step to kind of just start to be at and wanting that type of freedom because it is leading to stress. It is leading to anxiety. It might be impacting your ability to go out socially. It might be impacting your ability to eat flexibly. And if it's doing that, I can guarantee you, you are at the start of what we would diagnose as disordered eating. And so what we want to allow is to maybe do it a little bit slowly. You can go cold turkey. It's really hard. I would recommend having a sports dietitian or dietitian with you when you're doing that. Um, And you can delete the app and go for it. Um, Or you can go a little bit slower where you've still got the app, but maybe you're checking in with it a little bit less and less over time, starting to check in with your hunger and fullness, starting to really push yourself to eat more flexibly, um, eat more socially and allowing yourself to, you know, you can still achieve a deficit without counting and calculating. I know that sounds weird, but you can absolutely do it. And I do it all the time with clients. It is extremely rare that I would recommend someone calorie count because I know from research, 70% of the population are triggered by calorie counting in the negative sense of disordered eating. So there's no way I would feel comfortable as a practitioner having that number recommending to anyone that they would calorie count unless it is for a really short period of time with a really big purpose and a strong purpose. And there's absolutely times for that, but it is a tool in the toolbox, not a necessary. Um, how should I change my food around my menstrual cycle? Oh, I like this one. So um, when we're looking at menstrual cycle, we are so new in the research. It is astounding the confidence that is around at the moment when people are recommending changes to exercise and training and nutrition around menstrual cycle. We can estimate, we can guide, we can give some assumptions, but honestly, we do not have the confidence. We just do not have the research yet to be able to accurately change around, um, you know, a seed cycle, um, or do supplements at different times. Honestly, People are overcomplicating this stuff a lot. Um, The biggest thing around eating for menstrual cycle is acknowledging that your hunger and appetite are going to change over that time and accepting that because it's a real challenge, particularly for someone who just thinks they need to eat the same every day or they're like someone who enjoys calorie counting, um, all those types of things. What you want to be considering instead is actually thinking through that acceptance of, oh, I am actually really hungry today. 
And it was only last week that I was like eating, you know, I'd usually have two eggs for brekkie with my toast and whatnot. And I was going through this phase where I was comfortably eating three eggs. I was extending like and increasing my portions at pretty much every meal. I was like, what the hell is going on? And it wasn't until like I've had my period and then I'm like, oh, it was just that. And I'm in a really good place where I can trust that and be okay with, you know, increasing to three eggs and, you know, kind of breaking down those food rules, if you like, that you just have two eggs, two toast, and you would be not doing that or one egg and one toast, whatever that kind of rule is for you. Um, but it is really important that you allow yourself to know that and trust that your body knows what it's doing. Um, what we also find is that by kind of restricting overly in different points in time is that you will have moments where you feel a bit more out of control. You might have really overpowering cravings as well. And there's twofold in that. You absolutely have an increase in your metabolic rate and your need for calories in the lead up to your menstrual cycle starting in terms of the period piece. Um, so if you've overly restricted and not necessarily um, paid attention to that increase in appetite at meals, you'll probably find that you have an overwhelming sense of wanting to hit those cravings. So that's a really important one to actually help with that. But if you still have really high, you know, cravings for sugar, that's okay. Have some, enjoy it. Um, making sure that you're, you know, acknowledging that that is what you need right now. And the question you want to put on repeat is, for example, if it's chocolate, I can absolutely have chocolate if I want it, but do I really want it? And there will be times, particularly at that time of month, where the answer is an astounding yes. So enjoy that chocolate to a point where you're having the amount that suits you, that makes you feel good and feel good after as well. And that's what you want to get to. Um, I saw a um, question pop up. So if you've got any questions, pop them up. Sorry, I'm doing a bit of scrolling. All right. This may be a stupid question. <laughs> Not really a thing, I agree. Um, but may I ask why such educated people fall into traps around disordered thinking and eating, i.e. athletes and maybe high-level professionals? Yes, because it's not around the food. It has nothing to do with food a lot of the time. It's about control um, most of the time and that type A um, personality and most often they are people who love rhythm, routine, type A personalities that need control and, you know, feel really rewarded by that as well. Um, you know, a lot of um, people I work with um, in eating disorder are extremely educated. They know exactly what they're doing and that's part of the self-judgment that comes from it as well. And so does that exacerbate the condition where they're feeling completely judgment, um, you know, high judgment on their behavior because they should know better. They know better. They, you know, why can't I control this? And food can be, particularly in eating disorder um, and disordered eating, for those who don't know the difference, disordered eating is like the, on the continuum to eating disorder. Um, so we go from normalized eating to disordered eating to eating disorder and then reverse as well in recovery. So eating disorder down to disordered eating, into normalized eating. And disordered eating are lots of normalized things like um, cutting out food groups, um, missing meals, um, excessive calorie counting, obsession around food, clean eating, guilt and shame around food, um, losing that ability to eat socially. Um, those types of things will pop up in disordered eating. And then eating disorder, the more well-known, I guess, um, conditions that could be diagnosed 
Um, so yeah, it, it's a hard piece, but there's a lot, a lot to it, isn't there? Um, and it really does come down to that it's not necessarily around the food. And so us as dietitians are very often working in collaboration with a team around the recovery because yes, food is important. Support around food is important, but there's a whole lot of recovery that needs to happen alongside that that isn't related to food. Food's kind of the symptom. Sorry, I'm just making sure I don't have questions on here. Uh... <laughs> oh, Belinda, I love that. I've evaluated and reevaluated what that means so many times. Um, and I think that was around, um, oh, oh, the ideal weight. <laughs> that would have been it. Um, all right, I realize how long I've been talking. Um, does my metabolism change during menopause? Um, good one. So menopause is something that I wish was spoken about a lot more often. Like if we're thinking about changes in life and big ones, it is that. There are so many shifts and changes. One of the things we need to remember with men, uh, menopause are the changes that are happening outside of weight. Let's not focus on weight for a moment. Let's focus on changes in hormones for um, example so we get a reduction in estrogen um, as our menstrual cycle ceases um, we don't get those fluctuations throughout the month and that will lead to more of a male profiling with fat um, placement if you like so if you think about how males um, will usually hold weight it'll go to more the abdominal region whereas um, females prior to menopause are more around the hips and butt and that will change, obviously, depending on genetics. But as we move to less testosterone, we'll generally hold our weight differently. And so we may not have increased weight substantially, but we're holding it different to what we feel is our normal and where we feel comfortable. And so you will notice that. You'll also think about sleep. The sleep disturbances during menopause are immense and stressful uh, and very, very uncomfortable. And we know that the impact of sleep deprivation is quite significant um, to hormones, to our appetite regulation, um, to our ability to metabolize different um, things. So we need to consider that as well. We'll also be changing our movement. Um, we will feel less in control of what we're eating because of sleep deprivation and stress and whatnot. And so metabolism can be shifted, um, but it's not a really significant amount. It's more considering what's caused the change in weight. I always see is a lag, um, a lag symptom, if you like. So things have changed, whether it be to your um, movement, your eating, your ability to metabolize things. So that basal metabolic rate, how much you're burning during the day. And also we need to remember that Eating disorder rates in uh, menopausal women are higher than breast cancer rates. It is a really, really common thing. And I think by this stage, we're then further restricting and putting ourselves in lower energy availability. And as we said earlier, that changes how much um, we are able to burn at rest. And that's a really, really big indicator to then make it really hard to lose weight. Um, but also, please don't settle on this being your norm or just how you're going to live because, oh, well, I've got to this far then the thing is just me now. It's just who I am. It is so not. And you so deserve recovery and freedom.
Um, so yeah, the um, metabolism shifts can happen, but generally they can be impacted positively by different movements and also um, options during the day um, with food and ensuring that you're eating enough as well. Um, what is your response to people who say they are doing a faster diet? So the 80, 20 or something similar as a way to kickstart their weight loss goal. Um, so fasting is one of those things that can absolutely be used positively, um, for some people. I would always premise that with only those who've got a really positive relationship with food and body should be limiting our eating window and restricting on meals. We can get to that point if that's a strategy that works really well for you. But if you're someone who is not in a great place with their relationship with food uh, and will find restricting a meal um, or a time window something that's quite triggering, um, I would always just steer clear of it. Um, you can use it in certain points in time. Uh, and it is a tool in the toolbox I have used with people, um, depending on their movement, their days, their preferences, their hunger and appetite as well. Uh, and it can be a really sustainable option. However, it's literally a tool in the toolbox. And what I'd also push is that when we tend to go into a diet, whatever it may be called, we go in thinking we've got to do it 110%. I wonder what would happen if we just adopted it when it felt enjoyable, when it felt easy and simple, and when it felt really obvious. So if we wanted to do fasting, could we do it, you know, on certain days, not all the time? Could we, um, you know, change what we eat around our lives and to suit us as people rather than feeling like that diet has to become our identity? Um, and that's a really um, big one I push is that if you are wanting to adopt a food behavior, we first of all need to think about how it suits our lives, right? Uh, and why can't I stick to it? Is it me It's a, that's at fault? No, oh, people come to us and go, oh, I, just, I know what I need to do. I just need to do this again, whether it's calorie counting or keto or intermittent fasting or whatever it may be. I just need to do that again because that worked last time. And what I challenge that with is, did it actually work? Because here we are in a place that we need to work on some things and dieting is one of those things that is like the only industry that can fail us and we blame ourselves. Um, so it's not, oh, it wasn't the calorie counting that I failed at. It was me. I need to try harder. I need to do better. I'm going to be better this time rather than going, oh, actually, that calorie counting worked for a little while, it was way too hard, or it didn't suit me, or it made me feel eek, like, you know, all those things. We don't have those feelings. We have feelings that are really self-judgy. Um, so, yeah, that's a really big piece in considering whether, you know, that fasting diet or fasted or intermittent fasting is something to consider or not. Um, do you believe there are genetic links to disordered eating habits, thoughts, or do you believe it is a learnt action via modelling? Oh, well, it's not, um, I promise this isn't a belief. It is something that has come out in research is that there is a genetic component to eating disorder. Um, there's no clear trigger that we can predict anyone will be, you know, someone who will um, go into that journey of eating disorder or not. But there are um, things in life that will 
make it more likely. And so it's definitely a combination. It's not always genetic and it's not always alert behavior. Uh, and sometimes it's a combination. And that's a really, really tricky part with eating disorder is that there isn't just one journey. There isn't just one clear thing that triggers everyone that we can just go, oh, just don't do that or look out for this symptom because everyone presents differently and everyone's journey toward eating disorder is different. So yeah, it's a really tricky one, but yeah, there is a component of all those things. Awesome. All right. I think that will do team. I um, just realized the time, but thank you so much for joining me um, on this Q and A. Thank you so much for the ridiculously awesome questions too. I um, really enjoyed going through it and apologies for chatting away. It wasn't necessarily my shortest, fastest Q&A, but you can tell I haven't been on here for a while, so I enjoyed talking too much. Um, thanks so much, guys. I hope you have an awesome week. Um, I know it's Thursday, so have an awesome Friday and then a great weekend, and we'll catch up soon. But yeah, flick through your questions anytime. I can jump on again um, and go through them. Oh, thanks, guys. You're welcome. Cheers. Bye.